Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to InsureTech Amplified. Today should be a great one. We are joined by Meredith Barnes-Cook, the easiest name I have pronounced all week, an advisor and research partner at Resource Both. Meredith, thank you so much for coming to the show. It's great to have you here. And before we jump in to the main part of this conversation, can we give our listeners a little bit of your background for some context? Absolutely. Um, I'm probably one of the few people who chose insurance as a career uh, coming out of college. I can see the smile on your face so you can appreciate the, the irony of that. Uh, I worked at an agency when I was in college um, and really loved the very multidimensional aspects of the industry end to end from new business applications, policy changes, and then handling claims. So claims is where I chose to start my career. And I started off in workers' compensation claims, barely 21 years old, holding people's lives in my hand. I mean, as I think about it in hindsight, I'm like, what in the world was I thinking? Uh, what were they thinking? What were they thinking, right? <laughs> and then from there, moved across the rest of the uh, all lines of claims because, you know, people say, you know, kind of explain your career. And I said, I just kept saying yes. My, my brand very quickly became, um, I guess, organically that I was the person that was all about change and improvement and making things better. Um, but also I was at my best sometimes when I was coming into something that I had little to no experience in and or like literally did not exist. So creating new functions, new teams, changing groups, those types of things. I'm really curious about this idea of my career was always about saying yes. Where do you think this comes from? Uh Probably for me, uh, really going back to my childhood, I went through a lot of change living overseas. I, I moved a few times at some of those formative ages heading into uh, becoming a, a teenager. I don't know if it just, I just kind of learned how to roll with the flow as well as I was young. So early in the stages where people were asking me to go and do new and previously unanticipated things. I, I really didn't have anything. I was like, there's, there was no risk for me as far as I could tell. Right. I was single, you know, self-sufficient. I was like, the worst thing that was going to happen was I was going to discover something I didn't love and or I wasn't great at. And while no one wants to have those moments, those moments are as important as things more formative and one's life and growing to, to hit those hurdles. So I said, someone who tr I trust, who I believe knows what I bring to the table says, we think your next big move is X. And I was like, I didn't have a reason to say no. So I said, yes. I think, look, I'll share this with you. And I don't think I told you this when we did the prep call, but I moved around a lot when I was a kid and I, I went to three different high schools. And I think there's a certain thing you learn this adaptability, right? I mean, my boss came to me once when I was at Goldman Sachs and he was like, we're thinking about sending you to Hong Kong. Would you do that? And I said to him, I remember exactly what I said. I said, I'm already packed. So yeah. it's, it, do you know what I mean? And, and the yeah. funny thing is, the funny thing is that was on a Monday. On Thursday, he actually came to my desk and said, you're leaving tomorrow. That's a true story. Wow. Yeah. So I get, I get that idea. Like, I think I was always the guy that said yes to, and I always try to figure out like, what is it about somebody that makes them so adaptable? Because I think that kind of person, that kind of person like you are is actually really good at going into a situation where you don't know the thing and figuring it out and then building it in a way that nobody else could have possibly built it. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it really does. And for me, and loving the challenge of it. Yeah. Maybe some people walk into the unforeseen and the unpredictable, which, you know, doesn't feel like a place where an insurance person would be. I always looked at it like, oh, this, I loved blank pieces of paper. I loved like it, or, or this one sentence. I literally took on one initiative when I was during my 33 years at Liberty Mutual. There was literally one sentence from the president of the company. We need to start doing something with our customers on the internet. <laughs> very vague very exactly. vague abroad yeah and it's you know in you know much earlier in my life but it was almost like in a professional sense it was it was creating this child um it was creating this family this this whole new concept so what did you do what was the response what was your response to that you know i mean you and i must be approximately the same age right so when the internet started being a thing I remember, I remember like logging into servers from other companies because it was, it was a wide open thing. But I also remember sitting at my desk on, at Morgan Stanley and thinking, we need to be getting information from this. We need to be analyzing all this stuff. What was the result of that comment to you that we need to start doing something on the internet? I, I already had a sense of what I thought it should be, but I knew I needed to test that premise. I felt, well, a good place to start from a customer service lens yeah. would be reporting claims. But like no one was really doing that yet. Yeah. Or in bare infancy, it was more like fill out this form and fax it type of thing. Right. And so what I did was I had, um, you know, and you know, my boss reminded me every day, you know, you're a variance every day you show up because this wasn't budgeted work. This right. was, but it was president sponsored. So we were going to do it. Right. And so I was given um, two really brilliant um, analysts to be part of my team. And then access to the, the two underwriting leaders in the organization at that time. And so it was, in hindsight, a, a really very, very, very agile effort way before we even knew, you know, what, within the insurance what right. it was. So we really said we started off with a premise of what do we think the problem that we should solve, which is enabling customers to report claims through the Internet. Let's try this out. And this is, again, land of Netscape Navigator and AOL. And 14.4 baud modems. and um, But we didn't even have the infrastructure of letting customers right. have IDs to do things digitally online with us. Right. And then it was just continue to peel back the layers. Well, where do we start? And what's the smallest thing we can start with? Because we have no idea what we're doing. Like literally end to end, this is a complete net new. Um, you know, we're corralling a bunch of some of the most creative developers. And just pulling this all together. So we had to start really, 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 really small. And we also knew we needed a policyholder, a customer to work with. Right. And here's the thing too. So I'm really curious about how you look at the use of technology today. Because back then, right, like there was the internet, but yeah, 14.4 baud modem, like nobody even knows what that is. I mean, you and I know what that is, right? But the idea was that, that the infrastructure wasn't there yet to be able to do it, even if you had the idea. Right? Even if you knew that you should have this digital representation of what a claim looked like, and that when somebody filed a claim, they could get it, a whole bunch of work got done in the back end, and then it got sent to them digitally, that made sense. It still makes sense today. But back then, the infrastructure wasn't there to do it, even if the idea was. But how does that inform what you do today in insurance with technology, now that the infrastructure's there, and you can kind of do whatever you want? What's your view now on how tech should be used? And... and are we in a hybrid situation? Like what, what's the role of people and tech inside of this? Yeah, in some ways, 
while the, the details have changed for me from the concepts haven't. When I came into Liberty Mutual, it was the modern age of we had a mainframe claim system. So I really came in with, you know, the kind of digital, I'll air quote that, the right. digital concept very early on. So I was already kind of a less paper kind of person. I was like, why? Well, I don't need the paper. I have this system where I can put all my information in and it will give me reminders and follow-ups and I can send letters. And so I didn't, you know, I came in, maybe that was my advantage. Right. But I flash forward to almost 40 years later in the industry, including some jumps into loss prevention and managed care, 10 years of product and underwriting, three years at an AI startup. I still think it's, you know, technology is first and foremost, there's a few different, it's about the automation of what in insurance, what we've had as people look at long enough to know how that needs to work. Right. So it could be the automation of process. We know what the steps should be. We know more very detailed granularity of, of pricing algorithms. We know how the formula should work and the rules that should be applied. But how do we know that? Because we've done it enough times with human be human beings doing it to be sure that our premise was accurate. Yeah. Because you can't just come up with an idea, toss it into automation and just be okay with the outcome. Because in the end of the day, we are you know, in a regulated industry where we need to be precise about everything. And most importantly, we are protecting people and their, and their stuff. Um, so you can't be kind of carefree. You have to still be thoughtful in using technology. But isn't this the key point about the insurance industry is that it really is at the point of, what's the right word, the biggest crisis in your life or in someone's life, you want to have a person on the other end of the phone or on the other end of the chat or on the other end of the conversation that says, I'm going to make you feel better through your insurance policy, through the claim that you're making, right? In the sense that, sure, that, that person can be using technology to make that whole process more efficient. But at the end of the day, I think every human wants to be on the phone, and I'm putting phone obviously in quotes, right? But communicate with another human to feel like I'm going to be safe. I mean, if nothing else, that's what the industry should be about, right? Making businesses, making people feel safe at the moment where they have the most um, exposure, no? Yes, but I'd give it a twist. Go for it. I would say, and this is kind of the, what you know, the again, air quote, the Amazon experience. The Amazon experience is I decide. I decide how I want to engage. I have choices. I have options. And the big thing that I think really pivots where technology pivots the industry experience is, and especially in the claim journey, which, you know, is increasingly hopefully the exception event that any of us have to experience, right. especially as many of us are not driving as much anymore and everything's just so much safer, is I never have to ask where I am in the journey. And I say that and people are like, well, of course, but that is a huge, huge continued disconnect. What, what do you mean, though? I don't have to ask where I am in the journey. Do you mean because you have the, the claim int has access to all the information? So they always know where they stand as opposed to in the old days where, like, you'd make a phone call and say, take care of this for me. And then three days later, you'd get a call. But you never knew what the process was. What, what do you mean? Um, I think it's even more. It's about proactivity. It's about being proactive. It's you know, this, this. I have this statement of anywhere in the journey. I'm always being told what just happened, confirmation what just happened, right. what happens next, when, and is there anything else you need from me? 
that it's this continuous loop until we're done. And sometimes it's a one and done, and sometimes it's an ongoing, you know, juxtaposing, um, you know, getting reimbursed for, you know, a tow bill um, compared to a workers' compensation claim that is an ever an ongoing. And studies continue to show, and it was a recent study, I've forgotten I, who did it, but they said when customers receive proactive status updates, they perceived the claim went faster. Not that it did, but they perceived it did. Yeah, I mean, look, I like to make analogies and use metaphors, but it's like sitting at your table at a restaurant, you order a steak, you want it a very specific way. And at some point during the order, during the waiting process, the waiter comes over and says, Mr. Waits, don't worry, we're almost there with, we just want to get it cooked precisely right for you. Even if that's 10 minutes in, it still feels shorter than if they say nothing and then just bring it 30 minutes later and it's perfect. I think that's the point you're trying to make, yeah? Absolutely. And that, and it juxtapositions against any, sur I mean, insurance is a service industry. It's a risk management industry, but it's a service experience from, I've submitted a quote for new business. Well, if I'm not going to get something immediately back, then own my, own my expectation and tell me, when will I get something back? If it's a week, it's a week. I, as the, as the, the entity on the other side, I have the choice to wait or not. But if it's not a week, and I think it's going to be two days, if you haven't told me otherwise, when it shows up in a week, I'm already, you're late. I'm done. I'm out. Yeah. And this idea of expectation management, right, is so interesting. You're right. If, if at first I say to you, look, this is going to take a week. And then you come back two days later with a solution. Oh my God, I feel like you're a hero. But if you yeah. say nothing to me and come back two days later, I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> like, where mm -hmm. have you been? Right? Yeah. But, and on but you've, I was going to say this. You've also made a really good point. And I love when I learn something in real time. This idea, right, that a human has to be involved, which is the point that I made. And you said, no, I want to do it with a twist. This idea that the human gets the choice, right? Because there are times where maybe I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want the information. I don't want to be bothered by you. So it's a really good point. And I'm just glad you pointed it out. Sorry, I interrupted you again. Yeah, no, no, this is great. And it, it, it can be personal preference. It can also be situational either way. Yeah. And so the comment I make is it needs to be, you know, digital by choice, not by force. Um, but it has to be an option because two thirds of people out there, if self-service is digital is available, they will pick it. Now they won't pick it a second time if it's a really lousy experience, Sure. but they will at least try it out. In my previous role, I was working on, uh, life insurance as scenario and life insurance claims, and, okay. you know, in that mindset of, Oh no, you'd never as a beneficiary want to go through that journey kind of without talking to a person. And I said, well, I don't know about that. Yeah. You know, that really tough moment, I may not want to have to speak with someone because I'm already emotionally overwrought. I'm exhausted. Right. It's two in the morning. I can't sleep and I want to figure out what's the process I need to follow. Yeah. Now, to me, in the perfect world, a life insurance company is reaching out to the policyholder right. way, way, way back saying, we'd like your consent to engage with the beneficiaries to give them the instructions, you know, the, their points of contact information. So whenever that time comes, they already have it, which I also think is a big deal for, for Medicare uh, in the United States, for senior health plans, because I wouldn't have my mother's information except for the fact of sitting at the kitchen table one day and like making her give me all the details right. of everything about her, including her health, her health care. I had no idea to know exactly what type of plan she has, what she's covered for. And what if suddenly overnight I need to start making those decisions for her? Right. Yeah. You just made me think like my daughter's flying tomorrow. 
to Canada for a study abroad year. And you just made me think she's 21 years old. And you just made me think she knows nothing about my insurance policy. Mm. And if anything happens to me and she needs to make a decision. Yeah. Really interesting. Can we switch no gears? A little? Call. Yeah. She has no idea what to do. Can we switch gears a little bit? Because you said something that was super interesting and kind of in passing about vehicles. And I'm really curious about this because I spent a lot of time thinking about it. We're not at full autonomous driving, right? No. But people do drive less. People will drive less in the future. And you said it's safer now. So talk to me a little bit about where you think auto insurance is going. Again, just based on all the experience and all the cycles that you've seen. Because at some point, if I'm not driving, and if I don't even own the car, like, what's the implication for insurance there? I'm super curious about this. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different aspects. The first, um, and my son owns a Tesla, so and he's a he's a EV fan, diehard software engineer. Um, I go right. walking with him every evening, I so it. I know a lot about EVs and autonomous, and and I've driven this car quite often. So it's it's an interesting dynamic because. It really is an example. So how, what does a claim look like in the future? And who makes the When we have claim? that many, who's the liable party? Is it the car manufacturer? Is it the software manufacturer? Yeah. Is it both? Is it the driver? You know, it, it's almost like a, it's a whole nother level of technical forensics that's going to have to be brought to bear. Um, it takes the concept of using an independent medical exam to get, your arms around injury and disability, like at the cakewalk right. <laughs> um, versus having to have software engineers on call and specific ones and even like getting access to the data too, because, you know, do you have to go into litigation to go into discovery to get the actual data you need? So to me, that type of stuff fascinates me of what does the claim process look like in the future? Yeah, same here. And also, is it parametric, right? In other words, if, a, if an accident, and I hate calling these things accidents because they're not accidents, right? If a crash occurs, is there telematics in the car? Do they create a, a parametric experience that then creates a parametric payout? And is it para indemnity where it's like half parametric, partially indemnity? Like all these things are so interesting to me and I don't think it's been decided yet. Like I'd love to know what your son thinks about this. But, and you, you made a really good point too. Is it the software development company that, that is like, where does all this stuff stand? You must yeah. love this. Yeah, it's, it is fascinating. And you know, I think there's there's Tesla, which is a whole different breed of owner. Now, you see the first generation of them, like my son Baldwin. They've already agreed, I am willing to give up data privacy yeah, for yeah. the functionality. Like, yep. And my son is otherwise very insanely private. Like, I, he, he is, uses a, a pseudonym ID on Twitter, right. which is the only social platform he's on. And I'm not allowed to do anything more than like what he posts. All right. Because he is fearful they're going to reverse engineer and somehow figure out who he is. So he's very much he's very much privacy minded. I love it. But that being said, when it comes to the software, and he agrees. He's that's the one area where he's like, you know what, you know, have at it. Um, except though, the jury is out for him on two different aspects of from an insurance perspective of will he ever, when available in my state, right. go to Tesla's insurance. Um, because he's unfortunately had an accident. And so he understands the importance of the claim experience. And he's not really sure the type of claim experience he's going to get from a company that makes 
on the most sophisticated cars. And and by the way, Tesla is not known for as a Tesla owner for its service. In fact, it's it's a badge of honor, to, you know, when you get slighted through your Tesla experience. It's expected. Um, it's it's a whole crazy thing for the amount those cars cost. But that being said, otherwise, telematics is a really it's another interesting topic for me. Is we've been at it as an industry for almost thirty years. Yeah. And adoption wise, I don't know the exact adoption levels, but I think I would not be overstated to say they are disappointing, if not puzzling of still how few people have bought into the premise of, I will let you into the black box of my car right. to pay less for my insurance. Now, I think it has to do with a lot of kind of the psychology of people of it's not the right reward. It's not, a, it's not, it's not immediate. It's not tangible. And for me, I have all my insurance with one company, two cars, the house, the umbrella policy. If I had, and if I had telematics and that they would clearly see my car, except for every Sunday, sits in the garage. And so presumably I'd be saving a lot of money. Uh, but I, I don't know that I would really feel that because it's all one big charge that comes directly out of my bank account every month. So that discount, I wouldn't feel it right. in some rewarding way. Um, so I think there's still more uh, the jury's out. And then there's the question of for companies that sell through like independent agents where how does that work because you're asking you know it should be lower premium but then there's a commission implication for the agent right so i still think it, it's a it's a good concept but it just has not taken hold and i think there's a psychological study that we need to do to understand what would what are the rewards the behaviors and where where is that line crossed where it's but you can't come in my black box and use this when I'm in a, when I'm in an accident when a crash happens because that's a, I think that is a big reason why people don't sign up for it. I don't think it's been decided. Yeah, like no one really knows what the right thing to do is there. And you're right, we've been yeah. at this for 30 years, so it has yeah. to be way more complex than people think. Yeah. I want to ask you about this as well, right? Because we've spent a lot of time talking about technology and software and automation, right, and hybrid experiences. And from my own experience sitting on a trading desk at Morgan Stanley and at Goldman Sachs, one of the things we noticed as we started employing more technology, we started realizing that we had to hire different types of people. Not, not because the people that were there couldn't work with the existing technology, but because they had to rely on people in the back in IT to do it. So what we started doing was we started hiring, hiring people with degrees in advanced mathematics, programming, and you know PhDs in computer science, but who were also interested in trading. So that at the point of the trade, they could employ software and write their own software to do this. So we started hiring completely different people. Can we talk a little bit about, just in your experience, seeing, again, multiple cycles, thinking about how has the human resources of insurance changed over time? And how does it need to change going forward? Yeah, I think over time, at the core of it all, I, we wouldn't have insurance people writing their own software. Um, that would be kind of scary. Um, you know, like <laughs> like adjusters, you know, writing their own things and, um, you know, underwriters, et cetera. Have we needed to be sure? It's been, hiring has been less of a challenge because as we bring into the, into the industry, 
say people out of college, they've already lived in the world as it exists now, which is that level of, you know, automation coupled with service, et cetera. In some ways, what really hasn't changed is the core of what makes, say, a claims adjuster successful as opposed to an actuary successful, as opposed to an underwriter, you know, someone who's a loss prevention engineer, a nurse in managed care. Um, there's some of that core that in, in my view hasn't changed. What is changed is the tools that they use as part of how they get their job done. And what really has happened for anyone who, like myself, has been in the industry for a while is what's really come off of our plate is the block and tackling. You know, for, if technology has been done well, if automation has been used in it for its optimization of the, the high volume, critical, predictable things, the things that we know, and, and now we know how this should be handled, we should not be leveraging the most finite and most valuable resource we have people to do that. And why is that? Because those people need to learn how to catch and handle the new things that are coming, the, the what's next. Um, you know, 20 years ago in property, it was mold. We had no idea mold was a problem until we started building really tight, airtight buildings and homes. And all of a sudden, mold became an issue and became an endemic issue. And it took time for the industry to learn how to recognize it and how end-to-end -end is the whole insurance product and process change as a byproduct of factoring in mold as just one risk. Right. But how, so can we talk about this too? How have the risks and the risk management, the risk analysis changed over time? I think the core tenets of risk management analysis are what they are. What's changed is the ability to get it so much more information out in the world. Um, with, with that power comes responsibility. You know, like the whole chat GPT discussion of, you need to know your sources. You need to be sure if you're going to source in external data to accelerate your ability to price this new risk by being able to get at certified, you know, vetted sources of your competitor's data synthesized so right. nobody can, you know, it's not identifiable, of course. Then that's the thing we didn't have along. We had to wait much longer and we only had our own data as a carrier to work from. So that's the great thing now is there are those options where carriers can voluntarily choose to share their data, um, or even it's going in from a regulatory reporting perspective and becoming kind of public domain for the greater good, um, that we all need to know X. We, need to, we all need to understand this. This is not a competitive advantage where we're going to let some people and businesses be impacted because only these five carriers have, have seen this and know how to handle it. So what's your view on open insurance? Let me, let me hear your definition of it. So I, so this, sure all I... this data sharing, right? Yeah. In other yeah. words, open, open banking means that, right. Everybody has access to all the data, open insurance as well, even if it's not part of your policy, but you're sharing all this data around again, to make everything more efficient, more effective. And it, at some level it should lower costs because then I can do a better risk management. I'm just curious again, because if you watch this for enough time, you know, we can we could spend hours talking about data and data analysis. The data also has to be clean too, right? So there have to be some standards around what that data is. But data sharing is becoming a big deal across the financial services system. And I'm just curious what you think about it. Generally, I'm a fan of it because again, I think it's at the end of the day, the final point of competitive advantage has not gone away. 
which is the people and the tools that each individual carrier has to do something with that data. Right. And the data is not instantaneous. To your point about the data has to be normalized and cleansed and, and vetted, um, et cetera. That data is going to be potentially one to two years old, depending if it's coming in. You know, so that's the other piece to know. But I think at the end, you know, people can still compete on how rapidly they can figure out what that data means to them and their book of business. This idea that just giving everybody the data lowers the competitive value of the things that you're doing seems to me to be in a way upside down. And part of the whole competitive advantage at some level should even just be just the customer service you give, right? But again, if I give 15 people $10 a piece, well, that's like open banking in a way, but it doesn't mean all of them are gonna buy shares an Apple computer with it, right? Somebody might mm -hmm. spend it on cigarettes or dinner or something, and somebody else might invest it in something, and somebody else might put it into a, the bond market. So just mm -hmm. giving everybody the same information doesn't necessarily mean they're going to come up with the same product, no? I agreed. And, and the regulatory backbone of the United States, at least, is, is part of that watchdog as well, to be sure that kind of what's going to market is fair balance, um, not allowing for, you know, unfair, you know, un, you know, inappropriate competition, monopolies, those types of things, redlining, all of those things. Sure. Can you give me your opinion, just from a traditional insurance perspective, from an incumbent insurer perspective, what the startup market looks like to, to them and to you? Do you know what I mean? You see all these companies, whether it's Lemonade and all, you don't have to name all of them, right? But all of these things that they're trying to do, I'm just curious what it looks like from an incumbent perspective. When they look at it, do they think, uh-oh, this is going to be a problem for us? Or, hmm, how can we use this? Or should we work together? What is the view there? The view has evolved, I believe. Initially, it was, I think, from, from both perspectives. And, you know, and, and I'm over, kind of overgeneralizing. But okay. new, way back, maybe was it was 10 years back, new entrants are coming to the market. And sometimes the messaging was, we're smarter than you. We've got this all figured out. <laughs> insurance companies sit down, you know, we'll take it from here. Sure. And so that, that didn't necessarily start the relationship in a very <laughs> amicable footing. And then what we've watched evolve is the learning journey where the incumbent insurance industry has had to acknowledge some of these newer entrants to the market have looked at old problems with a fresh set of eyes right. and have sometimes been able to kind of get through the baggage and get to the heart of the solve. Conversely, they've also stumbled and they've had to course correct and they've, they've gained, I think the newer entrants in the market, they have gained over time, one, the humility that comes with experience yep. of it, it isn't easy. I always say insurance is, is not a short-term play and nor is it for the faint of heart. But if you can figure out, uh, you can introduce a new mousetrap to solve a newer existing problem, please come on in because we, the world will be better for that. And now what we're seeing most recently is more and more incumbent carriers, you know, they've created, they have their own maybe startups within. They've, you know, walled off, a, they've, they've like said, we need to, you know, kind of insulate this entity from the rest of the corporate structure and let's see what we can figure out to solve a new problem like Mobilitas within CSAA, for example. And then other carriers have been, you know, they've created a lot of the carriers now have a, have a VC arm. And they're going in and they're making strategic investments. And some are doing, you know, you know, over, you know, collaboration and funding initiatives. 
So I think it's taken time to realize there's more than enough risk <laughs> to manage and solve for. Right. And the right answer is all of us. It's all of us together. It's not an, an, an it's not an either or, it's an and. In a way, and this will definitely date me, it kind of reminds me of the late 60s where there was a whole cohort of people who said, like, don't trust anybody over 30. <laughs> you're, you're laughing, but this is the funniest thing to me is that, it, like, you can't stop your own aging. And at some point when you're 19, you think you're smarter than everybody. When you're 25, you think you're even smarter. But then you turn 30 and you're like, oh, oh I didn't have that information. And I didn't yeah. have that experience. And that's why I wanted yeah. to, to ask you from your perspective what that looked like. Because I think that, and again, you know, those guys and gals would go home and tell their moms and dads they were idiots. And their mom and dads were like, this is probably the wrong way to react. But as they get older, every, everything does kind of normalize, like you said. And they realize, oh, I didn't know that because I didn't have that experience. And I think it's the same thing with the startups and the incumbents. Both of them were just like, we need to figure out a way to work together. We need to enable mm -hmm. each other. And the other th big thing for me is, and I'm curious what you think about this too, is what's the power of the balance sheet, right? Because that's where all the money is. If you understand what I mean, what's mm -hmm. the power of the balance sheet and how long will it take a startup is never going to have a $400 billion balance sheet. It's just not going to happen. So when they figure that out, then they realize they have to be enablers and not disruptors. No. I agree. I agree. I mean, you know, I mean, I dial back to say whatever that, you know, that founder's vision and inspiration was, right. You know, you know, if they were intending to be no bigger than X, um, and this is kind of, they wanted to stay in this lane and that's all they wanted to do, then, you know, they're, they're great. Um, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but I think it is. And that's where you're seeing the, the balance sheet that can be either directly or indirectly the enabler of how we all learn and get better right. because it's not like the insure tax. It's not like the disruptors got it all right the first time either. Sure. And now they're the first, you know, there was a really good um, the C a CEO from a, a, one of the newer entries in the marketplace put out a, he wrote a blog about two weeks ago about um, embedded insurance. And he said, when we got going, we just thought it was all about direct sales, blah, 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 blah. And we, 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 we learned from our customers. Our customers said, no, we would still like the option to talk to a person before we make that decision. Right. And he said, so we got, we, and, and it's like, I'd say like, oh, I don't know if I'd say you got it wrong as opposed to you had a premise and you tested it out and you listened to the response and you, and you changed something as a result. And that's what we should all be doing, be it incumbents or disruptors. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes wonder like how different business is from just the scientific method, right? Because what you essentially just described is... I have a hypothesis. I went to the market. I tested the hypothesis. The feedback I got was I was wrong, right? And then I go back and I iterate. I get a new hypothesis. Mm -hmm. This is just the scientific method. It's scale, no? Yeah. No, it is. It is. Or, you know, now we call it test and learn and fail fast, which, of course, is a complete mental twist um, for anybody in the insurance industry. Because I was like, you know, so you're talking to people that are, we, our whole goal in life is to prevent bad things from happening. Right. And then you say, oh, but experiment and test and fail fast. And I was like, yeah, nobody wants to fail first. <laughs> you know, it's not a comfortable feeling because we're, we're trying to bubble wrap the world. Okay. So the last thing I'll ask you is this. 
some people just want to jump off a cliff. And some people just, when they walk to the end, they get, uh, they get this feeling that they don't want to jump at all. I don't think you can make people risk takers. I don't think you can teach risk taking. Again, my hypothesis, I test it all the time. But how do you get people more comfortable with risk so that they can be more innovative? I think it's bringing forward a wide array of examples of what, you know, what an experimentation could look like. And the, the fact that, you know, that story of doing the first notice of loss for, for, for Liberty Mutual on the internet um, is Liberty's first customer engagement through the web could have been an outright disaster. I mean, happily, it was a really amazing success. It also became the call center solution, the branch office solution. We, we eliminated a whole bunch of other applications and created this one core thing that finally 20 years later, I was part of replacing because the world had moved on and it was way past its prime. But it also could have been a failure. And I think it's less about, and I think the message is to people, it's a, you need to start something with a premise. You don't just like, you're not just throwing stuff on a wall and seeing if it stick. That's not a premise. No. You need to have a, 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 a supposition that you thought a bit about. If we do X, Y will happen. And why do we believe that? Then you execute. If that doesn't happen, the key is why not? What, you know, because if you're not going to learn something from that outcome that is not, I'm not going to say mistake because it's not a mistake, the outcome that doesn't play out the way you want to, well, then that was a waste. And that to me is being irresponsible and being careless. So I think if people can see that taking chances is part of how we learn and we're doing it all the time, you know, we do it all the time. We, we test it, we do something new every day. We just don't think about it. We just do it in our lives. You know, from, you know, going to a different restaurant, um, you know, and I'm really dumbing it down compared to the, the, the importance of insurance, but what's the word you go to a restaurant because you heard from friends that it was really good and you went there and you hated it. What'd you learn? I'm not going back. Right. <laughs> exactly. You know, but you say, why didn't you like it? Because a bunch of your friends whose opinion you trust, they did like it. So you want to understand you like, oh, we have very different tastes in food. Okay. Well, then those are not the people I asked the next time around when I'm looking for a restaurant reference. So I think it's about the learning journey and starting small, uh, which really most experiments should start small and grow um, as, as small as you dare. Uh, again, back to that internet analogy, we said, we're going to start with one customer, workers' compensation claims in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you know, very isolated. And we're going to start off with just reporting a claim and then getting updates and getting status reports and doing forms and then we're like okay now we're going to do five more states and we just we just we crawled we walked we ran but we were always looking carefully and saying course correct before we take the next step um because we didn't get it right the first time anytime because it was not new absolutely and that's a great way to end meredith barnes cook an advisor and research partner at resource pro that was awesome thank you so much thank you 